0: exceptional performance The Leaders Podcast This podcast is an introduction to the 10 essential elements to achieve an exceptional performance culture. Episode by episode, we break down five elements in planning, the what, and five elements in leadership, the how, by having experts share their experience, knowledge, and expertise in realizing these essential elements. In our first five episodes, the what, or the planning elements, were explored. They can be revisited at ProductiveLeadership.com. The how, or the leadership elements, are explored in our last five episodes. Episode 6, we take a look at leading performance, accountability, and communication. Next, in Episode 7, we explore culture, first by defining the desired operating culture, then in Episode 8, by measuring the current culture, Episode 9, leading the desired culture, and finally, in Episode 10, embedding the desired culture. The last podcast in this series. Today, I'm sitting down for episode 7, where Rob and I discuss defining the exceptional performance culture. So Rob, this seems to me like radical thinking, having an active culture strategy driving an organization as opposed to just posting your values on a corporate website.
1: It is radical, but you know, it's what separates the exceptional performance organizations from the pack. If you look at some of the writing of people like Raj Sisodia. The data is inarguable, and uh, so let me talk. Let me talk through a little bit. You know what's going on behind the scenes here. You know, up until recently, uh, most of the high-performing organizations all they had to do was just have a, a profound culture or a stated culture, and uh, they were they're already separating themselves from the pack. But today, in this more competitive landscape post-recession, what you see is. Um, a very disciplined approach to a culture strategy, a very active approach. Um, so in the past, you know, executives would sit around and they would uh, pronounce a culture based on their own view, uh, their own perspectives, the sort of motherhood and apple pie platitudes that you, that you see on a lot of websites. Without a lot of consideration for what's right for the business, what values and associated behaviors would create the desired culture that's necessary to optimize both Employee and customer engagement, for instance. And then, even more importantly, what are the core values of customers, suppliers, and most importantly, employees? And how are these evolving over time? The limitations of an executive only approach are obvious. First, a vibrant, well defined culture should clearly communicate the values and associated behaviors that are expected from all employees at all levels to deliver the organization's value to the customer in terms of product and services. You know, secondly, the approach needs to recognize change as a constant, and it has to be a dynamic process. So the, the, the values that are chosen, the cultural statements that are chosen five years ago, let's say uh, we have a client right now who I talked about before was in the biotech industry, and they have a very robust cultural strategy, and it was mostly developed from 2008 to 2010. So what's changed since then? Well, a lot has changed. The environment they're operating in has had uh, very significant shifts. So let's just take the external environment. Who makes the buying decision has changed. Uh, As little as six or seven years ago, the majority of the people make the buying decision for their biotech products were white males of European descent and baby boomers in terms of generational thinking. Now, the schools of medicine have been graduating more females than males for quite some time. So it's tipped. So that most of their customers are now female, generation X, non-European descent, and they take a significantly different approach to how they make the buying decision. Much more collaborative, much more interactive with patients and other stakeholders, not always thinking that they have to compete with the next practitioner you know, down the street. And so when they have a culture strategy, what worked five or six years ago, almost by definition, won't be an effective strategy for culture this year. So that dynamic view of things makes makes us realize that the old approach is no longer going to be helpful.
0: Right. But taking into account the experiences of you and your partnership group, what process do you recommend for creating a dynamic cultural strategy?
1: Well, let's break down that strategy into the three components. And I know this podcast, we're going to focus on the first component, and that's defining the best culture for your team, department, or organization. So let's focus in on on that a little bit. But you notice I said team, department, organization. A lot of folks think, well, we should just wait for the cultural strategy to be given to us from above, from our global parent. And then we all march to those expectations uh, globally. Well, there's some truth to that. And I think that any global company should have a strategy that they feel is aligned to what they're trying to do from a business perspective but it should be operationalized at a local level. So if you take an extreme example, let's say the head office of a company is in Japan, and it defines its culture and the way it wants to do business globally using terminology that fits the environment they're operating in in Japan. Now, that won't necessarily transfer very easily to Brazil or to the United States or to Sweden, where the cultural makeup and values might be, if not spoken and verbalized differently, there just could be a different list of values that people want in terms of that engagement as, a, as a, an employee or a customer. So it's good to be thoughtful and to have a global approach, but it needs to be operationalized at the local level. So that could be at the subsidiary level, at the team level, department, or organizational level. So so let's dig into that a little bit. What would people do if they were, say, running a, a very significant part of the business, a subsidiary? A sub team or a department. What we recommend is that the team get together as a group, or at least a representative group from the team, and look again at who do they serve, what's expected from them, who are the stakeholders for that department, whether it's operations, let's say, or marketing, or sales, or customer service. Think about, you know, who do we who do we exchange value with? What do they expect from us? And the list will change from one year to the next, depending on you know how dynamic the market is that you're serving. And even how those people think. Once you understand your stakeholders, you've, you know, thought about their perspective, or you've actually gone out and done some interviews or dug deeply to update your information, it's reviewing what comes from that discussion. If we think back to the example we used in an earlier podcast from the plastic surgery/slash dermatology practice in the West Part of Toronto. That's what they did so fundamentally well that helped them land on a very vibrant culture is it came from their stakeholders. It came from their employees. It came from the families of employee members. It came from patients. It came from referring physicians, vendors. They just did a good job of listening to those stakeholders. Then they had the data on the table, and that's the third step. Review the data. Make thoughtful, strategic decisions that are linked to what your goals are in the business. So, for instance, if, as we discussed in an earlier example, the company decides to make a significant investment in, in, in the number of products it brings to market and tries to become, say, a launch machine, a technology leader, then that value proposition needs to show up in terms of core values and the cultural strategy. It probably wants to put more focus on innovation and speed to market. So the third st- step is reviewing the data, so carefully selecting the values at the, at the management team level that match up to those dynamics and the goals of the business, and then defining those values in terms of behaviors. And that's where we see a lot of organizations fall short, is after they pronounce a desired culture, and usually just a global culture, they don't take it down to the individual level very effectively. So let me give you an example from a discussion we had with a client just last week. He had six people on an executive team, all serving completely different functions, finance director, operations, uh, quality, regulatory, of course, there was a general manager and a head of commercial. Now, they decided that innovation and risk appropriate, what they call a calculated risk, were two really important values. Now, when we asked them to define the behavior that would be appropriate at, each, at the executive level in each of the, their roles, of course, the level of risk they were comfortable the finance director should take in his or her role is completely different to the level of risk and the behaviors that would be associated with the proper leadership activity from the head of sales and marketing or commercial. So identifying the supporting behaviors, how does each person potentially contribute to or contaminate the desired culture and letting that individual speak with intelligence from their role as to how they can contribute or contaminate and get buy-in and support from all team members. That's really important if you're going to have a set of values and behaviors that is your culture strategy that people buy into. It's no different than your business strategy uh, on, a str- on a strategy, marketing, and sales perspective, for instance. That's, uh, that's what we see as best practices in this economy, as competitive as it's, as it's become. Can you share an example or two of an organization that's defined and lived its values? Yeah, there's a couple that come to mind that are real-life examples of balancing sort of a global expectation or culture strategy above with the reality of operating something at the sub-team level. So let's go to a a political example if you will. If you look around the world, many countries have got parts of their their constitution or their political makeup where parts of their governance is 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 not always completely aligned or they allow for differences in approach. Um in Spain, the Catalans in you if you look at North America within say Canada, you've got uh, Quebec and sometimes Western Canada that have slightly different views of the world, and even in, in our uh, situation in United States, you know there are times where you know they always say, "Well, there's the Union, then there's Texas," <laughs> and we have uh, we have fun with that. But the reason they work in many cases, and it's never perfect, but the reason they do work is to the extent they honor this principle we're talking about. Can you give people the freedom and, and opportunity? To run their business, run their organizations, run their province, their state um, that does the right things for the people who live or work there and does the right thing for other stakeholders, like an organizational example for customers or in a political example for voters or, or members of the society. And at the same time, stay aligned to the mothership, to the main constitution of a country or the values or cultural strategy of an organization. And many people, in fact, most people who are in management and leadership responsibilities aren't sitting in the head office. Uh, they're they're at the subsidiary level or the department level, and they're just trying to create, an, create, a, create a great environment where their employees can thrive. And they don't have to just throw up their hands and abdicate to what's coming down from above. Our guidance would be you don't want to be misaligned to it. You want to respect it. You want to look for ways to stay on side with it. But if you really pay attention to your own work environment, your own customers, you can create a very thriving and uh, uh, customized definition of the behavior and values that are going to really work at that level. So, I mean, let's take a sports example. You've got many um, organizations that if you look across the different sports, just always seem to excel. You know, I'm a big baseball guy, and you just, whether you love them or hate them, you have to respect the New York Yankees. It seems like when even fringe or mediocre players put on the the, the pinstripes, They raise their game. They raise their performance. And it's because the culture, the expectation around the New York Yankees clubhouse is a certain definable set of behaviors. And it's the Yankee way of doing things. It raises performance. You know, does that match up with everything that Major League Baseball stands for? Is it completely the same across each of the franchises? Absolutely not. But they can't get out of alignment with what the MLB expects in terms of behavior. And if and when that happens, things happen like when people take performance-enhancing substances or break the rules in other ways, bet on baseball, whatever it might be, those things need to be reined in. But you can have a dynamic culture as a sub-team, and I think that's a great example.
0: So if you're defining a team culture, is it possible to get carried away with this? Can you
1: have too many core values and too many defined behaviors? Absolutely. You know, you've got to balance the pragmatic aspect of this. It's got to be something you can operationalize, that people can... See, touch, feel, sense. So, I mean, if you have a hundred values that you really think you, you want to make part of your reality, that's just not manageable for an organization. We find the sweet spot is somewhere between three to six core values and then having the behaviors identified at the at the aggregate as well as the individual level. I'll give you a great example. Um uh, we have a client that when they had the deep dive, they looked at their data. They looked at the core values that came from all their stakeholders. They had a list of about 27 that they could all agree to. And to make it manageable, they selected six. And they thought that what was really going to drive their desired behavior and the outcomes they were looking for, and above everything else, were trust, communication, enthusiasm, accountability, teamwork, and innovation. Very dynamic environment, a very young, progressive environment. And listen, there were 21 others that didn't make that core list that they still want to see as part of the fabric of the company going forward, but they felt that these would drive 80% of the value and pull along those other core values in the process. Okay. So that helps us in understanding the core values. Now, how do
0: exceptional organizations operationalize that? How are the great ones putting this into practice?
1: Well, if you mean, are you done once you've pronounced your desired operating culture, we would emphatically say no and there's really two reasons for us to be that emphatic. First, it's important to recognize that the process of choosing the best culture for your organization should be revisited as often as your environment dictates. So if you've got a significant change in say the makeup of the leadership team or the buying decision has changed significantly in the marketplace as it did in the previous example or the makeup of your of your organization has changed, then you should revisit, you know, what's the right environment, what's the right culture to that we need to create for all of us to thrive at every level of the company and perform at our best. The second reason is like commercial strategy. Development and communication of your operating culture means nothing if you're not tracking implementation and looking for opportunities for improvement. Thanks, Rob. That's it for Episode
0: 7. In our next episode, we'll be diving deeper into measuring performance. We'll be lucky enough to have Dr. David Jameson, Chief Scientific Officer at Enveronics, joining us in studio to give us a more thorough understanding of the science behind working on culture in an organization. To hear that episode and more, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit ProductiveLeadership.com for more information. On behalf of myself, Rob, and the team, thank you and see you next time.